You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning, church. It's really good to be here with you today. My name is Matt Nickerson, lead pastor, and we are in week four of something called Death to Life. And the whole idea here is we're following the story of Lazarus, and we're using a book called The Lazarus Life by a guy named Stephen W. Smith, where he takes the story of Lazarus, we taught it in its entirety the first week, and then we've been allegorically walking through the book and applying its wisdom to our life. So that's what we're doing today. And uh, as we jump into today, I have to first tell you the story. So you may have been here all four weeks and you've heard the story a million times, you're tired of hearing it. I will go as fast as I can, but it's important for our guests and newcomers to hear the story for the first time so that we don't assume they know something. So if you're watching home online or listening later, here you go, the story of Lazarus out of John chapter 11. John 11 starts with this. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Uh, you're going to have to excuse me. I had a, uh, a surgical process on my lip last week, and it is not doing well this morning. So occasionally, you may see me do this. It's because it hurts. Okay. So anyway, so forgive me for any slurs in my speech as well. All right. So Lazarus and Mary and Martha, brothers and sisters, really good friends of Jesus. We see them throughout the Gospels. They are present in his life, hanging out, doing dinner, whatever it may be. We get here in verse 2. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, I'm going to do one, two, skip a few. I'm going to tell you what it says, and then we'll jump back into the text itself. So what happens next is basically Jesus gets a message from these messengers have been sent, and Lazarus is sick, and Jesus does nothing. He doesn't leave, he doesn't go to help, and Lazarus dies. Then Jesus gathers the disciples and said, hey, Lazarus is dead. We need to go and, and visit him. And they're like, Jesus, if he's dead, let him sleep. Or sorry, I said that wrong. If he's sick, let him sleep. And he's like, no, he's dead. So they clarify that. So Jesus takes the disciples, shows up, and the two sisters, Mary and Martha, both have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with Jesus. And both of them say the same thing. Jesus, if only you had been here. What we see is they're struggling. Like, ah, I know you could have healed him. I know you didn't even have to be present. You could have just sent the word because Jesus has done that. He's healed people without ever showing up present. Ah, you could have done something, but Jesus didn't. So they're wrestling in their faith. Can I still trust God when God doesn't do what I ask him to do when I ask him to do it? Is he still trustworthy? Now, what happens next is Jesus finally looks at Mary and says, all right, let's go to the tomb. They go to the tomb. And he's like, I want you to roll the stone away. And Martha looks at Jesus and says, ah, that's a really bad idea. He's been dead for four days, Jesus, and um, he's going to stink. And Jesus says, I got this one, guys. So then we get to verse 41. And it says, so they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Now we're gonna pause there for a second. This isn't the focus of today's sermon, but what's gonna happen is later on in the sermon, I'm gonna build on this point that I'm gonna lay down right now. So it's gonna disappear for a little while and come back later. But let me lay it down real quick. I find this fascinating. I don't know if anybody else finds this fascinating. Because Jesus basically starts praying a fake prayer. It's not really a fake prayer, but he's kind of talking to God and he's kind of talking to other people. And every pastor in the world can be guilty of this. Like you close the sermon, it's like, oh yeah, there's that one point I forgot to say, I really want to say, so I'll act like I'm praying it, but I'm really preaching one more time. Jesus says, it happens all the time, let me tell you. Jesus is sitting here, he's like, Lord, thank you for hearing me. 
And Lord, the only reason I'm telling you this is so everybody else knows that I'm telling you this, but I know that you always hear me. And why do I find that fascinating? Because Jesus has zero doubts about whether or not his prayers are heard. In a story that is all about whether or not God hears our prayers. Jesus knows his identity is secure. He is the one dearly loved, listened to, cared for by God. And what's true of Jesus becomes true of us through faith. So we don't have to wonder if our prayers are going up and bouncing off the ceiling. We don't have to wonder if God's listening. We don't have to wonder if God's caring or doing something about it. We may not know what or when or how, but we know with certainty we are dearly loved and so that we are listened to. And then in verse 43, when he had said this, I'll wait for him to put it up. There we go. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Many artists over the years have taken up to attempt to portray what this would have looked like. Nobody knows for, sure, for certain what it would have looked like. But you can imagine that he was wrapped up in grave clothes. And some of the artists have like a cord wrapped around his feet and out, coming out behind him. And here comes Lazarus, not triumphantly going, bow, here I am. It's more like he's waddling out, right? He's still wrapped in grave clothes, even around his face. So he probably came out and was like, and it's like, what? What? What's for lunch, guys? I'm hungry. I don't know. Whatever. I don't Nobody. Come on. So you're wondering, like, is this guy done yet? What's our lunch, honey? I don't know what Lazarus' first words are, but boy, I got questions. But then Jesus says, verse 44, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now, this is where we really want to build today is on these two principles. And what we're doing now is taking that story, making it a little bit allegorical for us. We are not literally Lazarus, but we are a lot like Lazarus. We are wrapped in grave clothes. And whether we know it or not, whether we want to admit it or not, those clothes stink. Now, I'm not talking about your teenage kids. I was here at the all-nighter on Friday night with the teenage kids. Their clothes stink. <laughs> I am talking about the things that we try to hide from other people. You know what I'm talking about? When I was a little boy, I remember I rode with my dad. I'd ride shotgun, right? I'm right there in the passenger seat. My dad would like to listen to sports radio or talk radio, and I didn't really care for it. I didn't understand what they were talking about at the time. So I would just stare out the window. But when I got bored staring out the window, I'd look at that little rear view mirror. You remember those little phrase at the bottom of the rear view mirror? Objects and mirror may, appear, may seem closer than they appear, or whatever it is. Maybe closer than they appear. I read it so many times I can't remember it. Anyway, the reason that mirror exists is to do what? Show you blind spots. Because if you don't have the mirror, then you might hit something. And now what we've done is we've added mirrors on our mirrors. At least that's what I do. I get one of those little circular convection mirrors or whatever they're called, and I put it on there so that I can better see blind spots. Because the reality is we all have blind spots, and our blind spots stinketh. They just do. Our blind spots are those things about us, those character traits, qualities, habits, things that we do that make us feel safe in the world but make everybody else feel unsafe. And it might be yelling or screaming or cursing or threatening or whatever it might be. It might be the drink that you turn to, the bad habit that you turn to, the compulsive, obsessive compulsive nature of turning on your phone or the TV or whatever it is or buying things or spending habits. But you turn to it or you do it. And when you do, everybody else around you goes, man, that does not make me feel good. I do not like the way that feels when you do that thing. But we all got great clothes. But then what happens is 
Other people try to point out those grave clothes to us, and what do we do? We do not respond well, do we? We do not receive that feedback well. I do not like being told that I'm not perfect. Do you? Now, as it turns out, I'm not, but I don't like being told that I'm not. And here's the reality for all of us. It takes a community to strip us of our grave clothes. It takes a community. It takes people coming into our lives who are willing to tell us what we don't wanna hear, but they love us enough to tell us in love. And how they tell us and the relationship that we have and our humility to receive it, all of that goes into whether or not we're actually able to strip off our grave clothes. See, what we do in America is we justify our attitudes, our actions, and our behaviors by the idea of our country, which is I'm free and I'm a free man, therefore I can do what I want, when I want, how I want, and who are you to tell me what I should do different? The reality is we all have blind spots. And those blind spots, if we're not careful, they will train wreck those around us. They will train wreck our faith. They can train wreck a church. And they leave people saying things like, you know, the reason I'm not a Christian is because of all the Christians. And some of you know all too well what that feels like. What I want to do. I'm gonna take us on a journey. So that's the principle. Now I wanna do is show it to you a scripture. I wanna show you just a few scriptures, not many, where we're gonna look at this idea of what a church should look like. So maybe you're visiting with us today and you do not believe in God yet. This may or may not be the best sermon for you. But what I wanna say is what I wanna show you over my remaining time is what a church should look like, could look like if it's doing what God called it to do. And then we'll do our best to wrestle individually with how we're doing with that, right? All right, first passage I wanna show you. Philippians chapter two, verse one. What's happening here is Paul is trying to make this joint, joint, I don't even know, what that, that's a word. That is not my lip, that is just me. Um, Paul is trying to make a point to the church, a joint, that's what we're gonna call that now, a point to the church in the city of Philippi. And what's happening here, he's about to, let me set it up, what he's about to do is right after these passages I'm gonna read, he's gonna use the example of Jesus Christ himself. And he's gonna say, now consider Jesus himself who was in heaven and worshiped and he came down to earth, he took on flesh and he dwelled among us and he allowed his friends to betray him, Peter, Judas. He allowed um, those he served to not always be thankful. In fact, at one point he heals 10 lepers and only one of them comes back and says, thank you. He says, where's the other nine? He's going to continue to give of his energy, of his time, of his love. And Paul is going to use the example of Jesus and he's going to say, now what I want you to do is be like him. Ready? Take a look. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Everybody should clap for that one because that would have been awesome, right? Wouldn't you love to attend a church where everybody is about everybody else? Because that's what the church is supposed to be, the one place on earth where that works. And I know what's going through your mind. It's what goes through everybody's mind. But if I do that, I'll get taken advantage of. And you might be right. Because the reality is Kingsway isn't perfect. You might end up in a group with people who take advantage of you. But what I can promise you is while Kingsway is a perfect, we want to take that wisdom and that feedback and figure out how to help that group get healthier. Does that make sense? We don't want to accept, well, it just is what it is. No, no, no. 
<clears throat> but what I want to do is I want to paint a picture for you of what a church could look like. Imagine a group of people coming together and nobody is a taker. There are seasons when we receive, but everybody is a giver. That's our mode. That's the way we view it. So now in this group where we are all together, coming together to love each other, our whole goal is to become like Jesus Christ. And we're becoming more sacrificial, less selfish, the longer it goes. And we each bring a little something beneficial to that group, to that team, to that thing, so that the group itself gets stronger and better as all of us are not really worried about, oh, I gotta protect myself so that nobody takes advantage of me. Instead, I'm giving sacrificially, knowing that everybody else is gonna be giving sacrificially. And when somebody gets out of line, we're gonna call it out. That's a blind spot. This person's being selfish. Now imagine a church that looked like that. Here's the big takeaway from this. If you get nothing else, I want you to get this one, especially you men. What Paul is trying to encourage us to do here, especially in this portion, if you have received it from Jesus, give it to someone else. So if you've received compassion, if you've received tenderness, if you've received love, if you've received joy, then you give whatever you've been given, give it away to somebody else. So the reason this is important is a lot of times I'll have a couple in my office and they're struggling in their marriage. I always challenge the men to be the first one to change. Now, it doesn't always work. Ladies, you can make checks payable to Kingsway Christian Church. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But I try to tell the men to be the first one to act different. And here's what I tell them. In the same way that Jesus has loved you, I want you to do the exact same things back to your wife, whatever that is. So if God has been patient with you, you be patient. If God has been kind to you, you be kind. If God has been merciful to you, you be merciful. And you go first. And I know what you're thinking. But what if she doesn't respond? It doesn't matter. You do it anyway, because it's what Jesus has done for you. And what will happen over time, if you have a woman, a wife, I should say that differently. If you have a wife, <laughs> Jesus called his mother woman. I'm just saying. I'm sorry, ladies. I really didn't. It was an accident. If you have a wife who loves God too, it will change over time as she sees you serving and loving her. And I'm going to guess what often goes wrong in marriages is one of them stops loving or serving the other one. In fact, uh, early in my marriage, uh, my wife and I were just kind of working through some stuff. And I went to one of my mentors, a guy named Chris, and I was just like, Chris, I, I need some help. What do I, I don't know how to fix this. Well, Chris was like in his late 30s and single. I'm not sure I went to the right guy to get help on what to do. Was like, but he gave me the best advice ever. He said, Matt, imagine if you and Rachel tried to outserve each other. It's been the best advice I've ever gotten. My wife is an amazing servant. She goes out of her way to serve all of us all the time. And almost always when there's fighting in our home, it's because I have not valued and appreciated her service or have not matched her service to the family. And I say that because it's easy to take, it's hard to give, but imagine a world now. The reason this is important, like what does that have to do with grave clothes? Now imagine a world where you're a part of a group of people and everybody is giving selflessly of themselves and everybody loves everybody and everybody is receiving from Jesus and giving to everybody else. Now imagine the safety of that group for you. Imagine how safe you would feel to have somebody in that group point out a blind spot out of the rear of your mirror and say, man, I don't know if you see this you're not real patient with your kids. If you believed you were fully loved, you wouldn't receive it as an attack. You would receive it as a gift from a friend. How about another one? Romans chapter 12, verse nine. Paul says, love must be sincere. 
hate what is evil. We don't compromise on truth. This is what goes on in progressive churches around the world today. We love, 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 love everything and everybody, but we compromise truth. It's like, well, well, God is love. Of course God is love. But God is not love to the compromise of truth. God is full on grace, full on truth. As I said before, it's a paradox, but he's 100% of both all the time. And so what Paul's trying to get to is that very concept within a church life. Hate what is evil. We don't change what is evil. Evil is evil. But we cling to what is good. We long for that. And we want to see that come out of other people. We want to see the evil go away and the good come out because we know that through the power of Jesus Christ, it's in there. It's in there. So he says, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves, above yourselves. Again, you could use that analogy of Jesus who was above everything and everyone, and yet he humbled himself, took on the position of a human being so that he could serve us. And when he walked among us, he didn't have a place to lay his head. It says, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the son of man, Jesus, has no place to lay his head. He came down to a poor family in the midst of Nazareth, this place that everybody else went, Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He took a humble position so that when he looked at us and said, I love you enough to tell you what's wrong with you, it wouldn't be received as, oh, you just want, you want to hurt me, Jesus. No, no, no. I'm telling you because I love you. And every parent in the room gets it, right? Every parent in the room understands exactly what this is like, even though we struggle to communicate it at times. Let me show you one more. Romans chapter 14, verse 13 says this. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. And everybody in the room should have said, Okay, five of you. Thank you very much. Appreciate support. I'm feeling loved up here. All right. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Again, the goal when we come together is I'm looking out for what's best for you. Anything that I do is going to be how do I build up your faith? I'm going to use an example, and I'm going to ask for a ton of grace in this example. But here's what Jesus tells us. We are not saved by the law. We are not saved by our obedience to the law. We are saved by grace through faith. Now, once we start to live that out, what happens is as we get closer to other Christians, we grow closer to Jesus, we become super, super aware, super, super aware of the holiness of God. And the more we see the holiness of God, the more we want to be more holy like God, but it gets easy the closer we get to Jesus to look at other people who are not yet where we are and go, well, those people don't get it and they need to get it. And we start to judge them. And it becomes dangerous. Because in judging others, we realize in some ways we're actually just condemning ourselves. I'm going to build on that more as we go, but I want to get to this for just a moment. So stop passing judgment. What's going on here in context of Romans 14, and I don't want to hijack it, but I do want to use an illustration. Paul is trying to encourage, the church is made up now, Jews and Gentiles, and he's trying to encourage the Jewish converts are saying, you need to worship on these days. You need to obey these dietary laws. You men need to be circumcised. And the Gentiles are going, ah, I don't know about all these extra rules and laws. That's your religion. I'm confused. I thought Jesus came, set us free from all that. I don't understand what's happening here. And Paul comes in and he's trying to help them work through their real issues that they don't agree on. And he's trying to say, look, Just because Jesus has come and set you free and now the Old Testament rules and laws and those things don't apply, that doesn't change that when you come together, you need to do things that build up other people. 
So let's say, I'm gonna use a real world example because Jesus did not do away with every command of the Old Testament. He fulfilled it, he didn't do away with it. But this isn't, that's not today's sermon, so I time, I've done that in other places, I don't have time to unpack that. What I do wanna build on, let's use the concept of alcohol today. I don't know if you ever heard of alcohol. It's this little drink that when you have some of it, it does things to your brain. And some people are Christian in this room and their walk with Jesus gives them the freedom to partake. And there are other people in this room for a variety of reasons. They could have come out of an alcoholic family and they hate it. They could have come out as maybe a stronger, more, uh, 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 I don't want to use the word legalistic. That's not necessarily fair. Maybe a stronger, a church that taught stronger against alcohol. They might themselves have be, be a recovering alcoholic. So for them, alcohol is not on the table. It is not something that a Christian should do or could do. In fact, on both extremes, the one can judge the other for completely different reasons. On one side, one could say, how can you not allow alcohol? Jesus drank alcohol. Here's all my passages on why you're wrong. And the other one could say, how can you allow alcohol? Alcohol only does evil things in the world. Tell me one good thing alcohol has ever done in the world. Here's my passages that back me up. And you can make a strong argument on both sides. And what Satan will do is they'll just take it, do a little grenade in the middle, and watch the church divide. And what Paul is trying to get to is if your conscience allows you to partake, by the way, without getting drunk, Bible's clear on that one. If your conscience allows you to do that, but somebody else in your midst, it is not okay for them, then for you, you put it away. And see, in America, we go, that's not fair. I'm free to do what I want. And Paul says, now see, when you come to Jesus, you're free to do what God wants. And what's more important to God is that the church be a safe place for us to build each other up and not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in front of a brother or sister. When you see brother and sister in the text, it's almost always, it may always be, I didn't actually do the math, but it's almost always the church. That doesn't mean it doesn't apply outside. If it applies inside, then it applies outside. But the whole point is that I become aware of my life and my actions, and I make sure nothing is going to trip you up. Like, wow. I didn't realize that the church was supposed to look like that. Well, it's supposed to. And imagine being a part of a group of people where everybody truly is looking out for what's best for you. I love the way that uh, Stephen Smith unpacks this in the book, The Lazarus Life. He says this. When other people judge, criticize, or condemn us, we can plunge into cesspools of false guilt. Swiss psychologist Paul Tournier, Tournier I'm probably saying it wrong and I apologize, said false guilt comes as a result of judgments and suggestions of men. Let's just stop there for a minute. Uh, I'm gonna use this story without giving details so that the innocent can remain innocent. But I recently had a conversation with somebody who's having a conversation with somebody. How's that for generic? And um, they feel very condemned and judged. They're being accused of things they have not done. They know they haven't done it, but they're being accused of doing it. And so they carry the burden of being a failure, of not measuring up, of not being good enough. And in this particular situation, that person's influence means a lot to them, so they want the approval but instead of getting the approval, they're getting condemnation. And it creates a very difficult scenario 
because what I want to hear is the voice of my heavenly father over me. And whatever he says is true and right, and I'll accept it. But I'm telling you, this is Matt Nickerson. Now, it's not their story. I struggle with this because I do not ever want to be a weapon of the enemy in somebody else's life. And I said this at the men's retreat this year. Far too often in my wife's life, he has used me to attack her. I got to tell you, that crushes me. Because if I saw anybody attacking my wife, I would not stand there and mock her while she was being beaten. I would not jump in and start wailing on her while they're attacking her. What would I do? I would attack the person attacking my wife. So when I become a tool in the hand of the enemy to hurt my spouse, what I'm doing is becoming the person hurting her. Are you with me? But now imagine a church where there's a group of people where it's even safe to say that. It's even safe to say, man, I feel like Satan has been winning in my life and in my home because I have allowed him to use me to hurt this person that I love, my child, my spouse, my parent, whoever it might be, and I don't want to be that person anymore. I don't want to give him that kind of authority. I don't want to give him that kind of place, and I need to own it. I need to repent. I need to acknowledge there's a blind spot, and if I don't see it, there's actually a group of people willing to come up to me and say, you can't see this, but we see it, and it has to stop. And then I love them enough because I know they love me. I know they want what's best for me. I know they're only trying to help me. I don't have to always agree with them, but I'm gonna receive it. I'm gonna go be with my father and say, God, what do you have for me? Is this real or is it false? He goes on and he tells a story about a 21-year-old college student who described his struggle with his father in this way. My dad, he acts like the judge, the jury, and the executioner when I do something wrong. He makes me feel utterly worthless. This is a struggle for every parent. How do I give feedback and correction to my child without it crushing them and they become a victim? Nevertheless, parents, life group leaders, church members, people love Jesus. This is very difficult for us to do, but it's so critical we do it, that we don't become the judge, jury, and executioner in another person's life. Paul even goes on, and I believe it's right there in Romans 14. I didn't write this down. And he even says, each of us, each of us as believers is going to stand judgment before God for all that we've done. In other words, I don't need to to condemn anybody. I don't need to judge anybody because there is one judge and I will stand before him and I will bring my life and all of its parts before him one day and he will look down on my life and evaluate what I did. And then he will hand out rewards essentially based off what I have done. That should humble me, but it also makes us very careful in how we approach each other because my job is not to be the, the, the morality police picking out different things in your life to pick on. My job is to come alongside you as a brother, to come alongside you if I were a woman, as a sister and say, I love you so much. I don't know if you see this. I love you so much. I don't know if you know this, but I love you too much not to do something. Wouldn't that be awesome to be a part of a church like that? But there's this real thing. And I think Stephen does a good job of describing it. It's false guilt versus real guilt. Let's do real guilt because it's easier. Real guilt is when I have done something that I know I'm not supposed to do. These are defined by God's word. I may not know immediately when I do them, but the moment that I know it, I know it, right? And I feel guilty because I've done something I'm not supposed to do. And what do I do when I feel guilty? I've spent a lot of time on this. It doesn't need to change, but what do I do is I repent. 
I go to God, say, God, I know I wasn't supposed to do that. I'm turning back to you. And then I make amends. I go to the person. I hurt you. I wronged you. I sinned against you. And I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And the church is supposed to be the place where we do that over and over and over again. That's real guilt. That's actually a thing that comes from the Holy Spirit. It's this conviction deep in your soul and your heart. Ah, I got to stop doing that. I know I'm hurting people. I know that's not good. I know that's not right. I got it. I got it. I got it. I know. I know. I know. But then there's false guilt. And false guilt is that feeling of condemnation or guilt or judgment that you feel. I'm not good enough. I don't measure up. I can't do things right. I never seem to get this right. And that illustration that I'm being very vague about, that's how they felt. It's like, man, if I just had more strength, if I just had more courage, if I just had the right words, if I just had more resources, if I just wasn't so tired, if I just, if I just, if I just, man, I should have done this. I should have handled it like this. Next thing you know, you're shooting all over yourself. And it's not going to go well for you. Shoulding. Because it's not the voice of your Father in heaven who's listening to you all the time. Like Jesus when he prays. As Steve Smith and Lazarus Life says, false guilt causes us to sink in defeat rather than rise up and move out of the tomb. Well, I was struggling with false guilt. And I won't go into the story, it'll be a little bit too vulnerable for this environment. But I went and saw a guy named uh, Dr. Walker. He was at the Blessing Ranch. And at the time, he was in Colorado. Now he's located in Florida. And he was helping me unpack some things. We'd had this kind of two-hour session. It was supposed to be a four-hour session with a break in between. It was time for our break. And he said, Matt, it's clear as day. It's clear as day what's wrong. I said, what do you mean? It's clear as day. He's like, it's Romans 8.1. I said, what do you mean? He said, it's clear as day. He's like, don't you know what Romans 8.1 says? I said, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I'm a pastor. Of course I know, but why don't you remind me? <laughs> he's like, no, I'm not going to remind you. You need, to go, you need to go be with God and read Romans 8.1. So I went on this long hike, like a little hour or so, and I got up to this like plateau, and I remember all these details that are relevant for you, but they're really powerful for me, and I found the spot, and I was like, all right, God, I'm supposed to hear from you and talk to you and hear your voice, so I'm gonna pull out Romans 8.1, and we'll talk, and you know, just say something to me and help me to be not so thick-headed, I can't hear it. All right, in Jesus' name, amen. And I opened up Romans 8.1, here's what it said. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm going to stop there. It was August 1st. In case you didn't get that, that's 8-1. I'll never forget it. Because shame and self-condemnation had been ruining me and not allowing me to walk in freedom. Because I had not received it, there is therefore now no condemnation. I was going to do a sermon series on Romans this year, but honestly, I couldn't find a way to get it down short enough. So let me do it in 10 seconds. <laughs> Romans chapter one is Paul saying, look at how evil the people in Rome are. Romans chapter two is Paul says, by the way, you Jews, be careful. You don't throw stones because you really aren't any better. Romans chapter three is every single one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 4 and 5 is basically Paul saying, that's why we need faith in something bigger than ourselves. Romans chapter 6 is Paul saying, and that's why God gave us the gift of baptism. Because in baptism, we are marking a decision to be united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. It's a marking so that I remember the day. People say all the time, but pastor, I don't know. How do I know if I had faith? How do I know if I did enough? How do I know if I'm right? How do I know if I'm good? How do I know? How do I know? How do I know? And I say, well, your confidence isn't in your behavior. It never was. Your salvation was never based in your behavior. Your salvation is based in faith through grace. 
But what if I didn't say the prayer right? Or what if I had questions and doubts since then? And what if I walked away for a couple years? I get it. A lot of people do that. I'm not okay with it. I'm not good with it. I'm just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't worry about it. Everybody does it. No, no, no. I'm saying it's not okay, but my salvation is found in grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's important because I have a moment in time. The reason I talk about baptism so much, I have a moment in time that I can say I'm marked that day. Throughout the book of Acts, people receive the Holy Spirit immediately following their baptism. And then there's these exceptions to the rule where people receive the Holy Spirit before their baptism. But do you know what happens? As soon as this whole thing happens, they're baptized. And the reason is this whole occasion of faith and coming to Jesus was supposed to be marked in a moment so that whenever Satan is trying to lie to me and tell me that I'm not good enough or remind me of my sin or point out my faults and I'm not sure what's happening, is this the voice of God or the voice of my enemy? When all of that happens, all of a sudden I got a moment in time I can point to and say, I remember. But then in chapter seven, Paul says, woe is me. I don't do the good I ought to do. I do the evil I ought not to do. What a wretched man I am. And I used to read it and think, oh, Paul's talking about before he became a Christian. Now I'm like, I don't think that's true. I think Paul is just letting us know that the flesh is hard. And then he concludes chapter seven at the very beginning of chapter eight. And even though I struggle in my flesh, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And all God's people should say amen to that. So I have to learn to recognize the voice of my enemy versus the voice of my heavenly father. And you may say, how do I do that? And I'll say, when you figure it out, write me a book. <laughs> but here's a few tips I've learned along the way. God longs for me to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. But he's not gonna condemn me. We already read that. So if that voice is coming at you and it sounds more like you and less like your name, it's probably not your heavenly father. Don't get me wrong. Satan can use your name in an ultimate twist of things. So that's not fast and true. You could always trust that. But I have found that when that voice is in my head and it's not my heavenly father, it's often my enemy is saying something like, you idiot. You really think you did it again. I can't believe, you can't believe you. You don't deserve them. You're not good enough. And it's amazing how you doesn't sound like my heavenly father. When Jesus is baptized, God looks down and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I imagine when God talks to me, and by the way, God will call me out. But he's using my name and he's telling me a better path. If your kid is going into a fire, do you look at them and say, oh, honey, honey, stop. Please don't go into the fire, dear. You don't. You yell, right? Stop. Don't go in there. It's going to burn you. So if the voice is coming at you very powerfully, that doesn't mean it's not God. But the way it sounds is everything. If it's, don't go there. This is gonna destroy you. It's gonna ruin your life. Turn around before it's too late. Do you hear how that voice sounds a lot different than, you idiot, I can't believe you're doing this again. What is wrong with you? Do you hear the difference in the voice? I often say this, 
if you just generically feel like trash, that's not your heavenly father. But if you know what you're supposed to do, that probably is. If you feel convicted about a moment in time or a thing you keep repeating, something you're supposed to let go of, a habit you're supposed to change, and it keeps coming up, ah, I know I gotta stop doing this. I know, ah. And your shame, your guilt comes from the fact that I'm not doing it. Not from the voice itself calling you and challenging you to something better. Do you see the difference? So God may be speaking in you to do something and your enemy is coming along saying, and you're stupid because you won't do it. You're an idiot because you won't get it right. And that's not the voice of your father. And as a church, we want to continue to partner with God and being the voice of God in people's lives to say, God loves you so much. I don't know if you see this. I don't know if you know this. I don't know if you're aware of this, but please, please, please stop going there. Don't go there. Deal with this. Turn around. Handle it this way. And then imagine a community of people if everybody tried to do that together. What a day of rejoicing that would be. What I want to do in my just literally minutes left today, I'm going to read to you the rest of Romans chapter 8 because it is my favorite chapter in the Bible today. And if you've been here at any length of time, you know I say every week, this is my favorite chapter. But I really do think Romans 8 is my favorite chapter. And I'm not going to read all of it. We don't have time for all of it. But I just want you to hear the voice of love because that's what Romans 8 is. And I'm not going to stop and teach. I'm just going to read. Romans chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. But those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with Jesus, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life as at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? It's written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. 
<laughs> no, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Yeah. With that, I just want to make this super clear. Here's what I'm calling you to, action. If you are a believer and you've been marked by Jesus Christ and you are experiencing false guilt, I want to encourage you today to not let your enemy have one more moment of your life. Make today the day you say, no more. I'm not listening to that voice. My father loves me, and that's enough. My father has created a community of people, and they want to love me. In fact, if you are not connected in a group of people like that, it's time. It's time. Now, most of our groups are winding down for the summer, so you aren't even going to find they get to connect until next August. But we do need to know your information if that's you. I would encourage you to text the word connect anytime, 317-565-4911. Just say, hey, I need to know how to get connected. Now, for the rest of you, who maybe you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you battle with this guilt and shame of not being enough. Maybe there's a habit or a hangup or a hurt that is just owning you. We want to walk you through what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. And you can do that right here, right now. Just like the gentleman today who was baptized, you can raise your hand and say, you know what? It's time for me to give my life to Jesus and accept his voice over me and let God listen to my prayers all day long. If that's you, just raise your hand right now. You don't have to know everything that comes next. We will come and explain it to you. And listen, if you're sitting there going, I don't know that I want to raise my hand in front of all these people, I get it. Most people don't respond in the room. They respond somewhere outside the room. That's okay. But I want to encourage you to go to our Connect Hub when the service is over and say, I need to learn more about Jesus because everything Pastor Matt was saying, that sounds like me. Let me pray over us. Father God, I just thank you for this group. I thank you for their love for you. I thank you, God, for their pursuit of you. I thank you for what you're doing in us. We thank you for your patience and mercy and your voice of love over us. And I just pray now in the name of Jesus, may this message sink deep into our hearts. God, create in us a church, a group of people where we truly help unwrap each other's grave clothes, where we very lovingly aren't afraid to look at each other and say, hey, man, you need to believe this truth. You need this encouragement. You need this challenge. You gotta stop doing this. You're train wrecking things. You could do better. I believe in you. And God, as we become that church, may you look down at us and be so proud, so proud. May you look at us and say, well done, good and faithful. And God, we love you. Thank you for the mercy that is ours in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. All God's people said.